Today's scripture is from the book of James, chapter 1, verses 18 through 27. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry, because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent, and humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and, after looking at himself, goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. Those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves, and their religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress, and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. The word of the Lord. So today's text gives me an opportunity to practice what I preach, or maybe more accurately to, to, to preach what James tells us to practice, because we're still in the midst of our, our modified worship gatherings here at Resurrection, meaning that whenever Dave and I preach these days, our sermons need to be a good 10 minutes shorter than they normally are. And, and believe it or not, it's actually harder to write a short sermon than it is a long one. Uh, a long-windedness is a spiritual gift that, uh, that most preachers have, and I am among them. And so when James urges us this morning to be slow to speak, in essence, to measure our words carefully, I find myself already challenged to practice what I'm about to preach on. And, and truthfully, I think James' guidance here couldn't be more timely for all of us because, and I don't know if you know this or not, but we're in the throes of an election season here in the United States. In fact, we're just over two months away from our presidential election. And in our current political climate especially, today's text strikes me as especially relevant as well as personally convicting. I mean, here we have James strongly confronting the toxic nature of how we often use our words and displayed most prominently these days, again, in our political discourse. And yet, at the same time, uh, James also does provide some strong support, I think, for the church's reawakening to its call to work for justice. And we'll get to both this morning, but let's start first by looking at how James challenges the way we engage those with who we disagree or, or who see the world differently than we do. Uh, if you have even the slightest connection to either social media or cable news, I mean, you are far more familiar than you'd like to be with behavior and attitudes that could scarcely be described as slow to anger. I mean, we're so bad at this, at, at genuinely listening to each other and, and being slow to throw out our point of view. And all indications are we're only getting worse at it. I mean, we've seemingly lost all ability to maintain a civil discourse. Our, our preferred method these days seems to be either to do all that we can to disparage those who are the other, 
those who, who see the world differently than we do, or we kind of simply swoop in, state our opinion, and then fly off, swoop and poop as I call it, rather than attempting to actually engage in anything that remotely resembles a conversation. And it's killing us, like a slow working poison. And even though I think we all recognize the truth of that reality, it's so much easier to point fingers and not recognize how we personally are part of the problem. For example, I mean, I will be the first to admit how critical I can be of our current president and just the lack of basic human decency that he displays in his treatments of all but those who praise him. And yet, as I've tried to do some honest self-reflection and take a step back to look at the bigger picture, I've come to recognize he is not the source of our bitter divisions and our toxic discourse. Rather, I believe the current presidency has simply served to reveal who we already were as a country, whether we wanted to believe it or not. And this covers the entire political spectrum. I mean, Donald Trump was a logical next step in our trajectory as a country, not some unexpected aberration. I mean, sure, he's made the problem even worse, but, but he didn't create it. And while voting him out of office may be a short-term solution, the reality is we have much deeper soul-searching to do in this country that one election will not solve. Now, I, I highlight all of this because, again, I think we can all see the problem, but the question is, are we willing to recognize our part in it? And will we do anything about that? We can't continue to point fingers at others and not examine ourselves, and especially we as the church must get back to the fundamentals of how we are called to embody our faith in such a divided and broken culture. And I believe James offers some really helpful guidance on what that looks like throughout his letter, starting with our reading from today. And so, so what does James view as being of first importance? He says that we be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger, which I think is among the most challenging commands in all of Scripture. I mean, we all love to have our point of view heard, right? I know I do. Uh, we, we love the mic drop moments. We love it when someone who we agree with says something that leaves an opponent looking foolish. We love it all the more when, you know, we drop truth bombs that show us to be the morally superior party. But James here is cautioning against such a posture warning that if we let anger be the primary fuel for how we live, it will never produce the righteousness that God desires from his people. And further, if we can't control our tongues, any religion that we espouse is ultimately worthless, in James' words. Now, I have to note at this point that James isn't saying that, that we're not to speak or that our words aren't an important part of how we express our faith, as Dave mentioned last week. Instead, what James appears to be advocating for is a particular posture that we as Jesus followers are called to hold. The posture of humility. Humility. And, and why should we humble ourselves? Because, as James' brother Jesus made clear, by humbling himself even to the point of death on a cross, it is the path to restoration and wholeness and healing in our relationships. When we have a posture of humility in our interactions with others, we reflect the heart and character of our God. Humility values the other above ourselves. Humility drives us to listen. Humility thwarts the rapid rise of anger. 
helping ensure that when anger does arise, it's more likely to be righteous anger than a reactive anger. Humility validates the humanity of the other. Being quick to listen and slow to speak puts us in a position where we are genuinely seeking to understand. It alone makes true dialogue and mutual discourse even possible. Now, at first blush, James' set of instructions about being quick to listen and slow to speak might seem to encourage faith that's a passive endeavor. But his later instructions clearly actually encourage the opposite of that, arguing that a passive, inactive faith is no faith at all. James argues that our listening, and and in this case particularly our hearing of God's word, must move us into action. Remember, at the start of today's reading that Nate read a moment ago, James wrote that God gave birth to us through the word of truth, through scripture, and that that creates in us an identity as a kingdom first fruits. And so it is that God's word is meant to shape us into a people who act out our faith, Faith, James says, that's merely an intellectual belief or, or feel-good emotions is meaningless. It's as good as seeing your reflection in the mirror and then moments later forgetting what you just saw, he says. I mean, why do we look in a mirror? I mean, maybe it's to, to make sure our hair is looking good or to make sure we don't have anything in our teeth or ladies at times maybe to put makeup on. Generally, though, it's to get a look at ourselves and make sure we're looking all right. But, but James says when we hear God's word and then don't do anything with what we've just heard, it's about as helpful as looking in the mirror to check on yourself, realize that your hair is a hot mess, and then just turn back around into your day without touching your hair or doing a thing about what you just saw. I mean, what's the point? And so it's here that James pivots his focus from the importance of listening and hearing to the importance of doing. And those of you who are in in life groups here at Resurrection should already be familiar with thinking this way when it comes to interacting with God's Word. Because there are two questions I always urge us to wrestle with as we study and discuss Scripture in our life groups. First, to ask, what is God saying to me? That's kind of the, the looking in the mirror question. And then second, what am I going to do about it? That's the making sure our religion isn't worthless question. Because we need both, right? I mean, action that isn't grounded in God's word will be ultimately unproductive or even counterproductive. But merely being students of God's word rather than practitioners of God's word runs the risk of cultivating a faith that, again, James says, is worthless. The two have to go hand in hand. And so it's, it's on that point and at the end of this chapter that I want us to land the plane today. In verse 27, James gives clarity on the kind of actions that should result from properly hearing and understanding God's word. James writes, Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Again, here we have a tension that we as Christians will always have to live with. I mean, the second part of that verse, that, the part about keeping ourselves from being polluted by the world, it's, it's familiar and, and I think at times a bit misunderstood. And it's, it's misunderstood when we think that it means we're not to engage the world, that we're supposed to withdraw. I mean, we've seen groups throughout church history who completely withdraw 
from the world, withdraw from culture in order to keep themselves pure and from being polluted by the world. And, And while they might succeed at being unpolluted, they also essentially move themselves to a place where there are virtually no kingdom use. Again, Jesus here, as always, is our model. Jesus clearly kept himself from being polluted by the world, and yet there was no one more engaged with the pain, and one might even say the pollution of the world, than Jesus. He moved toward the most broken spaces. He didn't shudder at the horror of human sin. He knew that healing could only be found through direct contact. And the same is true for us. We we cannot offer the healing balm of God's love from a distance. We can't keep people at arm's length and expect God to use us. Jesus sends us out into the world. We must be willing to get down and dirty. And yet, as James reminds us, we must keep ourselves anchored in God's word and our identity centered in Jesus. That's what keeps us from being polluted. And now to the first part of what James declared as religion that God accepts as pure and faultless. He says it's caring for widows and orphans in their distress, which is a stand-in for a much bigger class of people. Because in James' day, they were the most vulnerable population. They were those who were most likely to be on the receiving end of injustice, widows and orphans. They had no one advocating for their well-being. And there were many looking to take advantage of them, which is why, as the most vulnerable and neglected members of society, the class of widows and orphans are often singled out for special care and consideration throughout Scripture. And so it's in that spirit that our call, even to this day as Jesus' followers, is to identify those who are most vulnerable among us today to recognize what populations are on the underside of justice, to act on their behalf. And and this is where, as I stated at the beginning, I think today's text offers support for the awakening that we see happening in the American church regarding the importance of working for racial justice. I mean, this is but one of many such passages in Scripture that make it clear that this work should be at the heart of how we live out our faith in the world today. And it's part of why we as a church have committed ourselves to taking that work more seriously than ever before. It's why our fall life group study will be on the topic of racial justice and reconciliation. Because this is vital discipleship work. It's not peripheral. It's not an optional expression of our faith or only for those who have a passion for it. It is central. Doing this work, says James, is religion that God accepts as pure and faultless. This is where it's especially important that our work for justice is anchored in God's word, not in our human anger. James is clear on this. Actions that are fueled primarily by our anger will not produce righteous behavior. But not only that, I've observed that work fueled primarily by anger is unsustainable. In fact, we see this happening even now as names like George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud Arbery begin fading from our news feeds. It's a cycle that's all too familiar for our brothers and sisters of color. Folks get fired up about the work of racial justice after they're witnessing something horrific like George Floyd's murder. But then once that outrage kind of subsides, so does the willingness to continue the work. And round and round we go with little lasting fruit to show for it. 
rather any work that we as Christians do in this world, but especially work like racial justice, must be fueled by and informed by our understanding of God's heart. We must see how it's a vital outworking of the gospel and expression of God's kingdom. If there's any part of our work for racial justice and reconciliation that's fueled by anger, let it be alone by the holy anger that God displays throughout Scripture when he witnesses gross injustices or when he sees his people turning a blind eye to injustice. Let our passion be fueled by our understanding of how things like white supremacy deny the inherent worth of all people as image-bearing children of God. And let the work we do to dismantle that be fueled by our understanding of how the gospel tears down every wall that divides us, bringing freedom, liberation, fullness of life to all. And so, sisters and brothers, as, as we leave later this morning, may we accept James' challenge. Let us catch ourselves when we're tempted to add to the toxic discourse in our culture. Remember that the next time you're about to post something or comment on something on Facebook. And may we instead discover the freedom that's found in humility as we practice being quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to get angry. And then, consciously entering the pain of this world, may we remain unpolluted by anchoring ourselves in the love and character of the God revealed in Jesus. And then informed by God's word, May we step out into our world, not just with a better understanding of God's heart for the vulnerable and the oppressed, but with a greater conviction to act on behalf of the vulnerable and the oppressed. For that, James says, is religion that our God accepts as faultless and pure. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of life. We thank you for the identity that you have shaped and are shaping in us through your word and through your son, Jesus Christ, who is revealed to us through your word. As your people in this world, I pray that you would develop in us a humility that truly is quick to listen and slow to speak, slow to get angry, that desires to understand another, that enters into conversation seeking understanding, seeking restoration in relationship. And God, may we also be a people who act on your word, who we don't just hear it, but we do what it says. May we be a people who care for the vulnerable and the oppressed among us, following the lead of Jesus, yet so anchored in your word that we keep ourselves from being polluted by the world and instead act as your light and your love. Jesus, we pray these things in your name. Amen.